racism means different things to different people at this point in time. Uh, white supremacy means different things to different people. Colorblindness means different things to different people. So we can't just say the words and assume people understand what we're saying. We have to say the words and they have to hear us out. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we are having another one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with professor, scholar, and sociologist George Yancey. Are you tired at the current way racial conversations are going on right now? I mean, do you feel tossed back and forth between two extremes and neither one feels quite right? And maybe you feel like you want to be able to dialogue and even participate, but you feel like you are forced to the kids' table? Well, I have some good news for you. Today on our show, we have George Yancey, who provides us with a way forward in our polarized world. George is a professor of sociology at Baylor University and has written extensively on institutional racial diversity, racial identity, academic bias, progressive Christians, and anti-Christian hostility in academia. And today, we're going to discuss his most recent two books. Yes, get that, two books. The first is entitled Beyond Racial Division, where he provides a thoughtful and necessary way to move forward in our conversation on race. But our conversation is not only about race today. George has written another book that I think deserves a bit more attention as well. It's entitled One Faith No Longer, and it provides an in-depth examination into conservative and progressive Christianity in America. And it is eye-opening and something that we need to talk about. You know, at Apollos Watered, our goal is to water your faith so that you can water your world. And it's hard, though, to water your world if we don't address some of the questions and objections that our world has to our faith. And in order to do that, we need to talk to the best thinkers, strategists, practitioners, and experts of the Christian faith in the world who can be guides to us so that we might stay between the guardrails of orthodoxy and orthopraxy to show how the word of God bears upon our lives, that we can be true to the person of Christ in this disjointed, chaotic, divided, and overwhelmed world. We want to provide a safe way that leads us to harbors of peace, stability, and unity as we stand forth for the name of Jesus Christ in the middle of our world. The the fact is that we need guys like George Yancey because they are showing us the data and how to interpret it properly. Guys like him are voices of reason. I have followed George a bit online over the last few years, and I can safely say that he doesn't get caught up in many of the things that are going on in our culture, and he is a bedrock of truth and really just goes after what the data reveals. He doesn't get caught up in the political rhetoric, nor is he swayed by one agenda or another. And in a world that is seemingly tossed back and forth by the waves of Twitter, George has managed to be a lighthouse of objectivity and reason in the midst of our current cultural storm. 
And I must say that I am super excited to have him on the show to discuss his research and what it reveals or what it shows us about ourselves, our world, and how we can live as Christians in a world that isn't. Happy listening. George Yancey, welcome to Apollo Swattered. How y'all doing? Oh, y'all. So it's Texas. There we go. It is Texas, yes. You know, I've I've moved recently to the South, so now I understand the difference between all, I mean, y'all and all y'all. I hear those are two different things, right? Is that right? Yeah, it just depends, I guess, on where you're from. Uh, You know, no, Southerners sound the same. In fact, I'm really not a Southerner, but I just live here. Okay, well, we'll have to talk about that. But are you ready for the Fast Five? Let's go. Here we go. You have young boys. So, shoots and ladders, or the floor is lava? Actually, neither one. Neither uh, they, one? They do, yeah, they, 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 they do more reading than anything else. They don't play any games. What do they like to read? Well, uh, do they like to read your books? No, no, they're, they're not ready for that. Uh, Although my oldest has read some Narnia and he's only seven, so he's pretty impressive. Uh, I, you know, any games we act, we we we're actually trying to teach them how to play checkers and chess and and connect four and that sort of stuff. I'm not much of a board game person, so I think I, I rubbed off on them. Uh, how old are your boys? Seven, five, and three. Oh my goodness, you're busy. I I'm, I'm surprised you have time to even do this show. Me too. <laughs> Here we go. This is what I, I also know, knowing a little bit about you. You're at Baylor University, but you're mm-hmm. also a Texas fan. So, Texas yes. or Baylor? When it comes to sports, it's Texas. When it comes to academics, Baylor. That's where I, you know, that's where I work. That was a very judicious Jesus kind of answer. Like, I affirm <laughs> and yeah. I separate at the same time. Question three. The best food in Texas is where? Ooh, uh, you know, I eat a lot of uh, fast food just because I have boys, young boys. And so there does, it, it makes no sense to go to a nicer place. Uh, I think that if I was just for myself right now, if I had to could go out uh, with my wife to someplace, uh, there's a there's a cool place. I won't say it's the best food, but you know we we like to go to a place like the greenhouse in Denton. Uh, so so that that's kind of be a place we, we could hang out if we had the time to hang out. Hmm. What's the name of the restaurant again? The greenhouse. The greenhouse. Yeah. Hmm. What I'm kind of food? The best in Texas. I'm just saying for us that's kind of you know if we got if we actually had a chance to go on a date that's probably where we would go. What what do they do well? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's very healthy food and, and uh, it, it, it's delicious. Uh, so, yeah, and I guess if we really could go on that date, they do have music late at night, but we don't we don't catch that because we'd be home for boys. Oh, yeah, that's you're busy with the boys. It's a miracle you yes. even get to go out to eat. Yeah. <laughs> it's we a special treat. Oh, uh, no, I, I understand. I've got four myself, so I, I fully understand. So here we go. Here's your next question. Because you're a Texas football fan, who's the better football player to come out of Texas? Ricky Williams or Vince Young? Ooh, I'm going to go with Vince Young because he gave the championship. He delivered the yeah. championship. So it's hard to beat. Now, 
in the NFL, I think Ricky Williams had a better career. But uh, if you ask me who's best at Texas, I'm going to go with V.Y. He was so good. I have to he say was. I loved watching them beat the snot out of USC. <laughs> I hate USC. No offense yeah. to my USC people. No, be offended. I hate your football team. <laughs> it was a good game. I don't know if it was beat the snot. I'm just glad we won. <laughs> we won by one or a hundred. We won. So here we go. Here's the next question. If you could pick a movie title for your life, what would it be and why? Uh, what a strange guy, you know, uh, <laughs> I just don't fit the boxes. You know, I, I, I don't. Uh, and so people, people don't know where to place me. And, uh, you know, we have, a, you know, I'm black. Well, no, I'm a Christian. Well, no. Sociology. I mean, people just don't know where to place me. So I just say, what a strange guy. Maybe that's why I like your stuff so much because I, I feel like I don't fit yeah. places all the time. Cause people are like, you're a pastor. Yeah. But um, you know, you're, you're yeah. like academic. Yeah. But uh, so I understand that. I, I really, I really, I really feel that. So those are, those are our, those are our fast five, but here we go. Let's jump into, you've written two books recently. I want to talk about the, the most recent one first, if that's okay. And I, sure. I do want to touch the other one because, I, I think both of them are very important works and I thoroughly enjoy both of them. But we have your most recent book, Beyond Racial Division. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see I've, I've highlighted, I've written, I've gone all the way through it. I mean, the spine is bent. I've, I've really enjoyed this book. And I, I think I've really Im- just been impressed with your approach to different things. But in your title, it, it lays it out. And honestly, when you first I first saw the title, I, I thought to myself, what, well, what is that? I, I didn't exactly know the parallel points that you were creating there. And in the subtitle, for those that can't see the book or don't have it in front of you, it's a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. So I know this is a bit remedial, but can you just give us a quick synopsis of the two of those two positions, first of all, the sure. anti-racism and the colorblindness? Let's hear what you got for that. Okay, so colorblindness is probably a little bit easier to just state. I mean, colorblindness is basically the idea that we defeat racism by ignoring race. Mm-hmm. That as much as possible, we try to ignore race. And if we're not ignoring race, then we're not treating people differently by race, and therefore racism ends. And so that's really, in a nutshell, to people who advocate colorblindness, talking about race is part of the problem. Mm. We talk about race, then we're noticing race, and then that creates part of the problem. So that's colorblindness. Anti-racism is a little more complicated in that different people may define it different ways. For my book, what I decided to do is read the literature on it, read people who are, who are claiming to be anti-racist and to see what they had in common. And I boiled it down to three major ideas, although there could be more. I'm not saying this is the last word, but three major ideas. And one is that racism is multifaceted. It's individualistic as well as structural. Two is that we have to be very deliberate, very proactive in tackling racism. That if we uh, if we address, you know, we, we can't just sit back. We got to be aggressive in, in dealing with racism. Now, honestly, those first two points I agree with, and if that was all anti-racism was. I probably would call myself an anti-racist. That's the third point that I think uh, creates a lot of problems with anti-racism. And people may disagree, and I always challenge people, then find me the anti-racism book that doesn't do this. Mm. The anti-racism third point is the, the role for whites is to do what people of color 
want them to do. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that comes through in those books. And I don't know how you can read those books and not get the sense that it's preaching to whites, hey, you need to do what people come and watch you do. And it, it may ask different things, different books ask for different requirements of whites, but that's what it boils down to. So that's how I see both of those uh, ideas. So then you, you see the first first part, the, the colorblindness, you see the anti-racism, and then you're, you're struggling with that. Now, first of all, I, I just want to park on that, where you say the anti-racism and you're struggling with it. What made you go, okay, this isn't sensitive, or this doesn't allow uh, uh, you know white people to be a part of the conversation? What was the impetus? Because rarely do people catch that dynamic, or they might, like me, I would feel that going, wait a minute, because I've been to conferences and I'm saying, I yeah. want to work through this. I'm, I have a church that's diverse. I, I want to be able to talk about these issues. But then suddenly it's like, I'm not allowed in the room. And yeah. th that, I mean, I feel that. But what made you see that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, from a relatively young age, I, I've, even before I was a Christian, I noted on how uh, selfishness, how depravity is, mm -hmm. you know, in all groups. And uh, just hearing how people were talking about it, and this before I really dive into this, I just had the feeling this was wrong. Mm -hmm. This was not going to work. Uh, even though I liked, a lot, I liked a lot of the ideas I was hearing, it's like, but then when we get to how we solve it, we get to this, and that doesn't seem to be working. And so, uh, so I had a gut feeling. Now, once I started diving into the research literature, it was confirmed. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, at first it was, you know, I, I would love to say that I was looking at the research. It just came clear to me, you know, that would fit in with the sort of social image I have as a scholar, but it was honestly, it was more of a, so just, you know, I, I would see how people were, were acting. Uh, and then I would just realize this wasn't working. I'll, I'll give you one, just one example. Uh, when I was in grad school, uh, I was a uh, what we call a graduate assistant mm -hmm. for a for a course, an intro to sociology course. And the professor at the time, who was not a graduate student but was teaching the course, she was talking. Uh, and this was before anti-racism was called anti-racism, but mm -hmm. it's probably anti-racism. She was trying to show the whites just how horrible people of color had it, and she was talking about historical racism and stuff like that. And the way she did it, you know, was I guess trying to be guilt-inducing. I was in the back of the class and I was looking younger than I do today. So students forgot that I was a TA. I looked like another student. Mm. I just looked around and the white students, they weren't being convicted of their guilt. They're rolling their eyes. Mm. They're thinking, oh brother, whatever. And some things like that told me that this does not work mm. as far as bring people together on your side. So initially it was just, since in it, and then we look at the research, it confirms that this does not work. Mm. I want to go back for a second. I, I know this is going to sound trivial, and I should, probably should have asked this at the beginning, but you mentioned you don't fit in categories. Yeah. Being a sociologist, what made you want to be a sociologist? And you also mentioned you're, you're not from Texas. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. Oh, okay. So are yeah. you one of the people that came to Texas? Just or Did you start the trend? So everybody moving from California to no, Texas, I, is that I, it? I well, I was very young when it, when it happened, and it wasn't my. I guess it was quasi my choice. My mom asked me to go and help out my grandparents, but it wasn't that I was trying to get away from California. Okay. Uh, I mean, gorgeous weather, 
if I had my choices, I probably would have stayed in California. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it is what it is. Uh, you know, you asked me a question about uh, why I went to sociology. Is it that's an interesting question? I I originally got my master's degree in economics because I got my undergraduate degree in economics. Why I got my degree in economics, I don't know why I chose economics. I just did. I'm the first person in my family to go through college. And so mm -hmm. I didn't have people think through, sit with me, hey, what do you want to do? Da, da, da. For whatever reason, economics sounded cool. So I, I took it. I thought that that's what you did. You went to grad school. And, and, but I took a sociology course. And I enjoyed that more than my economics course, the sociology of the family. Mm -hmm. And there are interesting questions about divorce effects and, 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 and raising kids. And I thought, this is more interesting than economics. And so when I decided to go on to get a doctorate, I was gonna go on in economics, I went on in sociology. So that one course changed my, my direction. Hmm. Okay, I, I, would, I was curious, cause you mentioned you don't fit in the categories and definitely being yeah. sociology. And I, I love sociology. That's why I think I, I gravitate to uh, mm -hmm. your work and everything that's going on. Um, but going back to our, our, our our previous questions, we were talking about the two different positions. Of course, we have anti-racism and the colorblindness. You actually propose a third path that you call the mutual accountability model. And I, I, I love this because you've given us language and really you've given language to me of something that I've been struggling with because mm -hmm. this is what we have actually done where yeah. we've been, but we didn't have a name for it and you've named it. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But I want you to explain to us a bit what is the mutual accountability model. Okay, so here's my elevator talk. You know, I got on the elevator fifth floor up to the first floor, so I'm gonna ask you what's your book about. Uh, my book is about the best way to, to deal with our racial relations is to have better conversations with one another. Where everyone gets to enter in, we can have healthy dialogue, uh, and then we can find solutions that most of us can live with. Mm. In a nutshell, that's what it is. Now, obviously, once you start diving into it, it's more complicated than that. How do you have healthy conversations? What sort of skills do we need to develop? How do we, you know, gear towards that? What sort of venues to create for it? I mean, it gets more complicated as you get into it. But in a nutshell, that's all I'm asking. All I'm asking is we have better conversations where we bring everyone into the conversations. People of color are correct that for years, we were excluded from conversations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. But the solution, and... You know, unfortunately, this is what's, you know, it's not just my perception. I think that this is what's, what some people are doing in anti-racism. They're overcorrecting that by saying, okay, we're in the conversation, but whites don't need to be in the conversation now. I, I think that, and research shows, that works against finding better solutions. And it creates a backlash that, that just perpetuates the sort of conflict that we have in our society. You were mentioning in your book, you talk about diversity training that's been mandated at certain different uh, jobs. Yes. And you, you, you gave some pretty interesting research there I, that I thought was particularly fascinating, that companies that mandated diversity training, mm -hmm. in, and I don't know how much time passes in between that, but it actually works in the long run in a negative effect. Can you describe that for a bit? Yeah, so in this research, what the researchers did was they looked at companies, they looked at the percentage of managers who were, who were of color, 
And they looked at what the companies were doing in order to try to increase that. And then they came back five years later. So they had a five-year span in between. I, you know, I don't know if, uh, if there's a lag effect in when they started emergency training or you can't tell that, but this is what happens five years later. And five years later, companies that did mentor diversity training, not voluntary, but mentor diversity training, actually have fewer managers of color. Uh, that, that's Dobbins and Calvich. They're the ones who did that research. I think is one, one of the most important research as far as telling us about solutions. Because what it tells us is that you can want something that sounds like it, that's good, but in the, the day, it does not have a positive effect on what you want to accomplish. And it doesn't, then we should rethink what we're trying to do. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times we don't rethink. We, we just keep going and doing the same thing over and over again, even though it doesn't work. Uh, what we need to do in order to bring more measures of color is opposite of what we may think. You know, we think we have to dictate things to people, uh, grievance committees and things of this nature. That actually also results in fewer managers of color or at least is correlated with that. What we need to do is to go to those white managers and let them work with us instead of trying to tell them what to do. Mm. And the companies that did that actually had more managers of color five years later. So this is what I mean that when we try to shut people out of the conversation, we, it may feel like this is the best thing to do, but, and this is not just about being nice. I'm not just saying, hey, you know, I care about white people and this is what I'm doing. I do care about white people, I'm married to a white woman. So I'm not saying I don't care, but this is not about me caring about white people. It's not about me, uh, you know, being a traitor in my own race. This is about what actually works. And this research shows that if you want more men of color, the best thing to do is go to the white managers you have right now, get them on board, tell them, how can you help us? Um, you know, we'll give you responsibility in order to try to increase the diversity in our home. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. There's so much, again, what you've written, the research you've highlighted, the, the details that are there in dealing with these issues and showing just by research. This isn't just personal opinion. This is the, the research. This is the data. This is what it's pointing to. Um, and, and that's why I like it, because it seems to me that it's not only well-researched, but it's a highly pragmatic solution of offering these potential uh, workable solutions. So then how do we, or should we 
balance the obvious need for these practical solutions on the one hand with mm-hmm. principles that may not be popular with the other side yeah. or with the other or with the secular, secular culture more generally. So what do we need to do there? Yeah. So, you know, the book, this book was written by, you know, for InterVarsity Press, which is a Christian publisher. Right. So I, I actually do have a book out there that it's like 10 years old or maybe yeah, about 10 years old called Transcending Racial Barriers, which is published with Oxford University Press. Mm-hmm. So it's a secular book. I can, I can argue these argue ideas without bringing in any Christianity. Uh, I use secular theory, secular data. Uh, and so I have no problems if someone wants me to go and speak before a secular audience as to what approach we should use and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a very important Christian principle. I agree. Uh, you know, important. Research has shown that people who forgive are immensely healthier. Uh, they're less likely to be depressed, they're less likely to hold on to grudges, which, which you know, creates uh, anger and this sort of thing. You don't have to be a Christian to get the benefits of learning how to forgive others. So if you are a Christian psychologist who teaches about forgiveness, uh, and teaching Christians how to engage in forgiveness. And a secular organization says, you know what? Research shows that forgiveness is very important. Can you teach our people? Why, why wouldn't you do that? You know, why would, even if they don't ever become Christians and yeah, they don't have ultimate salvation, why not make their lives better here on earth by teaching them how to forgive? And that's the way I would feel about this. I can talk, you know, forgiveness, you can look at all the research, secular research, you don't have to, you don't have to go to the Bible. I don't have to look at the Bible. I can look at secular research and it reinforces the, the position that I have. Mm. In the book, one of the things that really struck me is you give an illustration of a marriage, an abusive mm-hmm. marriage that, that really, in reading it, things became much more transparent to me of the positions then. Yeah. Uh, it crystallized it in my mind. Can you just get, briefly give those those the, the the illustration so people can help un, sure. help them understand yeah. it because it really gives them an interesting you know structure to hang their thoughts on yeah so i talk about a hypothetical situation where you have abusive marriage where the man's very abusive to the woman and in this country in this society divorce is not possible because people are going to say well, why she, she, she should leave them and i'm you know i don't want to be misinterpreted saying that i think these women should stay in abuse, abusive marriages Understood. so i just want to be very clear about that. So I, I create this boundary that you can't leave, all right, for whatever reason, you know. Okay. All right, so what can you do? Uh, I think that does capsulate a lot of our racial problems where we have centuries of racial abuse and we can't divorce each other. So I think that it's fair in that sense. And if you just say, all right, the man just stopped abusing and, and then that's that, and we'll just not talk about it, then you're, you're talking about colorblind perspective, right? So you're talking about colorblind perspective. We don't talk about racial issues. We don't talk about race and things just go on. And we know, those of us who understand human nature, that that will not create a healthy situation. The damage has been done. You've got to work through it. On the other hand, as tempted as may be, the solution is not to give the woman total power because she too is a fallen creature. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people who are abused can't turn into abusers. Mm. Research shows this. Right, a lot more child abusers are more likely to have been abused as kids. Mm. We can and should feel for them, their abuse as kids, but we cannot allow them to go on to abuse more. And so that's not gonna that's not gonna end well either. 
we know the solution is. Solution is the couple, you know, if the man has stopped abusing, still needs counseling to learn how to work through their issues and to find ways of changing their, their, their marriage so they both can benefit and thrive in that marriage. Things have to change. This is not, you know, my analogy is, oh, just go talk and nothing changes. Things have to change. It has to change in a way that's healthy. And what we've done is we've, we've chosen one or two unhealthy ways of changing our, our racial situation. So we have to rethink how we go about this and how we, how we interact and the personal responsibilities that are there. And, and as you said, there's, you know, in the one side of the marriage, the colorblind uh, part of that analogy is that the woman can't really, I mean, she's got her own issues to deal with, not her own issues, but rightfully so, rightfully so she's dealing with the effects of the abuse mentally, emotionally, psychologically, everything. So she can't just let him back. There are consequences for the action and, and the colorblind approach kind of makes it so there aren't really any consequences, but there are consequences. The other side, as you were saying, is that it goes so far where then the woman uh, she becomes the abuser in the situation because she says, and if I remember correctly in the book, you abuse me for 15 years, I'll abuse you for 15 years. <laughs> and, yeah. and then it kind of goes on and that doesn't work either. But there's the part where he comes back and he says, please forgive me for the abuse it's done. I know there are consequences. I'm going to work through it to rebuild your trust. And yet you are working through the anger and the bitterness. And there's that mutual conversation part that's there. Yeah. That's what I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that really did resonate with me. But it seems to me that a lot of the angst and underlying then confusion regarding issues of race have to do with these, these definitions, because some people don't even like the definitions mm-hmm. that have been supplied. Uh, and, and that's what I see a lot of the fighting going on back and forth, especially online. It's about words yeah. and how words are being used. And, and everybody assumes that their definition is what that person means. I know I do. I'm sure I'm sure other people do as well. Do you have any suggestions on for helping people to make sure that they're really understanding what people mean when they're talking about yeah, these issues? I, yeah, this is where I, you know I talk about active listening, and this is where we have to have that because you know uh, racism means different things to different people at this point in time. Mm. Uh, white supremacy means different things to different people. Colorblindness means different things to different people. So we can't just say the words and assume people understand what we're saying. We have to say the words and they have to hear us out. We need a a, a deliberate, constructive conversation where we clarify our our position and others help us to deal with that position and they define their position so we can find solutions. Uh, You know, oftentimes our conversation gets broken down, breaks down over definitions. Uh, sometimes people use that in order to get out of conversations. You know, uh, sometimes you know you're in a discussion with someone, you're uncomfortable. You want you know you you find some little thing to pick on them so that you the conversation goes elsewhere. Mm. We got to get away from doing stuff like that. If we want solutions, we got to find ways we can communicate with each other and learn how we can communicate with each other in ways that they can hear us. So yeah, I, I think that that is uh, a key important. Uh, aspect of this. So go go back for a second, because I, I think that the act of listening is something that people hear, and I want you to describe what that is for a bit. Okay, so as a uh, as a researcher, when I do qualitative methods, which means when I interview people or do focus groups, something like that, I have to engage in active listening. Active listening is listening so I can understand where they're coming from, not listening so I can argue with them or mm-hmm. listening to, to win a debate. 
so my purpose is simply to understand. The example I have to give, I think I gave this in the book is, uh, several years ago, I did a book on atheism. Uh-huh. I'm a Christian, all right? So uh, I'm a Christian, I'm happy as a Christian. I intellectually find a- atheism bankrupt, just to be honest. But my, my respondents, this is what they believe. I listened for the sake of, of hearing them out and understanding why they've accepted atheism, the rationale, how they grow up, how they feel about religion. One of the techniques that you use in active listening is you paraphrase what people say uh-huh. and you put in your own words. And if you've captured the essence of what they're saying, then they'll say, yes, that's what I believe. If not, they'll say, no, here's what you're missing. And then that gives you another opportunity to really listen. So these are some of the things that you can do in order to engage in active listening. You mentioned the sixth American. Mm -hmm. Describe who this sixth American is. Yeah, I I actually did not coin that term. That came from Michael Emerson in in his work. Uh, Sixth American, you know, you can think about it as we have five major racial groups, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans. Mike argues that there's a sixth group. Now, they're not a racial group in the traditional sense, but they're, they have their own unique racial reality. And that racial reality is shaped by the fact that they're very multiracial. Mm. That their friendship, the social networks tend to be racially mixed. They free, freely date and marry interracially. Their job places are racially mixed. They may live in a racially mixed neighborhood. Their world revolves around being of a lot of different races, whereas you know, when he's talking about traditional white identity, whites who tend to hang out with other whites for the most part. Blacks, same thing, other blacks. So this is what he calls a sixth American. So this is the person that engages a lot of different cultures because they live mm-hmm. in that world. Yes. Which makes sense to me. We, we did an early segment of our show called Cross-Culturing, and it was just talking about cross-cultural relationships and friendships and, and mm. more anecdotal kind of stories of stupid things and, and misunderstandings yeah. and things like that in order to, to help people see that, hey, this is going to be a little bit awkward, but it can be fun. If you put yeah. a little fun to yourself, you don't take yourself seriously. And I had this guy from Chicago, and he, he's from the city, and he goes, I don't really listen to those episodes. And I said, why? And he's like, well, it's not really relevant because I'm already doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my everyday experience. This has never been a non-issue for me. Everywhere I go, the school I go to, my work, everywhere, it's always yeah. different ethnicities. But I, I think a lot of people are still in a monocultural mindset, although that's changing. It was, we've seen that happen in the United States. Mm. It's changing all the time. And yet the, the enclaves seem to become much more tribalistic where people are becoming more resistant because they do feel like it is forced on them. How do we yeah. go about trying to freely engage in those conversations? I mean, what do we need to do? In some ways it's very practical. It's, it's walk up to someone that you don't, know and, and and engage in a conversation but at the same time that feels a bit forced like i yeah, don't want yeah. to find uh, yeah, I don't someone recommend, just I don't on their ethnicity doing that, by the way yeah okay i don't recommend people walk up to the stranger and say hey let's talk about race you know, <laughs> not that but... if, if, so, if someone if someone does with me I, I would i would be trying to get out of that conversation <laughs> you know, i don't know you but let's talk about race uh yeah well, uh, 
I think it more meant what I more meant was uh, I was in grad school and I went to when I was moved to New England and and we moved in January. So we got like inundated with snow. We had one car and I lived 20 minutes from the school. And in the area we lived in, every other house had an occupant because it ended up being summer homes that people Mm -hmm. didn't stay in. And they were just renting it out to us because they needed the cash. And my wife was going so crazy. She's like, you need to bring home a friend. You need to bring home someone for dinner. And so I walked up to a guy in the class who was answering a lot of the questions. And I basically walked up to him and said, would you be my friend? (laughs) I mean, it was just like as a kid, your mother moving to a new neighborhood. My mother would walk me over to the kid down the street, knock on the door and say, hey, we're new here. And, you know, play. But you don't do that. You don't want to talk about someone just to say, oh, I, I want to talk to you just because you're you're black or because yeah, right. you know you're Indian. That that doesn't play well because as you no. said, that that's not the intent behind it. it, it it's yeah. somewhat admirable, but it's also mistaken because a person yeah. is not just that ethnicity. I mean, we're we're we are that, but we're more too, besides our skin color. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I'm much more than being an African American, but I am an African American. Yes. You know, uh Part of what I'm talking about, of course, is having a conversation, which means we're trying to find solutions, which means I'm trying to convince other people of the importance of what I want. So I'm trying to engage in persuasion. Now, in this society, we're so polarized, we think of that as a dirty word because your persuasion is, you know, you're trying to force people. You know, you're in a class, professor forces people to reiterate something, or a preacher's trying to force you, or things of that nature. But actually, that's not a, a good source of persuasion. That's not how persuasion is usually done. One of the things you have to do is you build rapport with people. So this is why you don't go to some stranger and talk about a explosive issue such as racism. Mm-hmm. You know, let's first ask them how the weather is and, and that sort of thing before you even get to that. Uh, that, is, that is not where your influence is going to be and probably should be. You, you, you start with your own friends. Or you develop friends that uh, that you disagree with, but you understand better. Mm-hmm. That's a way in which you begin to learn how to talk to people in ways that they can hear you. Uh, so, you know, but you build rapport, you, you find out what you agree upon, you, uh, you admit when they have a good point. These are the sort of things that help us to persuade others. And it does so in a way where we build community with each other rather than build this polarization that we got. What do you th- see then is the biggest issue? I mean, I don't want to say biggest issue. Let me rephrase that. The book is relatively new. It, it coming out just a, a month or two ago. Yeah, about a month ago. Yeah, about a month ago. So it hasn't gained a lot of uh, pushback yet. I would think, just because yeah. it hasn't been out that long. What pushback have you received thus far, and what? Or what pushback do you anticipate receiving? Because you do yeah. kind of indict the two different positions and you say there's mm-hmm. a third way. Yeah. So what, do you, what, what opposition do you, do you anticipate? Yeah, I, I think that the extremists, people who are extreme colorblinds, extreme anti-racists, are not going to like the book. Quite simply because it's threatening. Because right now, the idea of doing this is relatively small, but what it catches on. I think that there's a lot of people in the country that, that would appreciate this idea. Uh, oh, I, I think and, so. And so what if it catches on? Well, then if you're advocating for colorblindness, all of a sudden you have this competitor now, this new competitor. Same thing with the anti-racism. So I think that both of those would be problematic. As to what, uh, you know, I can talk to you about people that I've had discussions with 
throughout the years, you know, those who are colorblind, just mentioning race, they're, they're gonna have a problem with that. They probably don't like the fact that I argue that things institutional discrimination is a real thing. Because when I've talked to people with colorblind, they argue that they can they can see that racism can happen, but they think it's isolated, that it that just happens infrequently. So they're not saying that there's no racism anywhere in the country to be fair to their position, but they think it's very isolated. And so talking about institutional discrimination is something that they probably will push back against. Uh, I, you know, I think the anti-racists will make arguments such as, well, it's not fair to ask a person of color to enter the discussion, discussion because of the baggage they carry. And that's something that I've heard. Uh, that I'm not concerned about justice. You know, I just want to feel goodism. Uh, that I'm too nice to whites. I've actually heard that one before. Hmm. Uh, so those are some of the things I would, I would anticipate from some of the people who are anti-racist. Not that this really matters, but... I mean, maybe it does. Which side do you anticipate being more resistant? You know, if I was forced to answer that question, I'm going to guess the anti-racist side is going to be a little bit more resistant. But I think I'm going to get resistance on the other side as well. I, I think you will, too. Maybe it's because more of the anti-racist position appears. And again, I, I, I might have my own. I mean, I have my own lenses. But it's more vocal or at least mm. culturally speaking I mean, it, maybe that's a wrong perspective on my part, but um, working through that, that's what I, I wondered is, is that you're going to get heat from both sides. I, I, I was reading something that Tim Keller had written the other day and he men, mentions that he often gets nailed for advocating a third way. Mm. And I, I think that's what I'm hearing so, from so many different people. And one of the frustrations that I see, it's like you're either or, or you're on this side or you're on that side. Mm. And usually there's something in between. Experience shows me that there is something in between that is much better of a solution because both solutions on both sides often seem to be quite frustrating. But yeah. that's the world we live in. And, and again, this is why I think your research is so important because it is based on research. This isn't personal opinion. This is backed up by what you can see in the statistics, even in the institutional racism. And that's probably the biggest in, in the people that I'm interacting with. And I, and I have both the activist and I have the, the colorblind, but more mm -hmm. often more of the, the lay people to the discussion, if you will, are more on the colorblind side. Yeah. The, the, the activist is the person that is, is, I mean, outright, you know, calling out and crying out. Um, and, and understandably so. But the, the thing that I'm trying to do is trying to figure out how do you call people out of that colorblind mentality um, to show them that there is such a thing, not just as personal sin, individual sin, as you mentioned, but structural yeah. sin or, or structural prejudice. What was the terminology that you used? I don't want to misquote you. You said structural uh, racism, structural racism, institutional, institutional racism. Yeah. Okay, describe actually what that is for a moment, because I know some people go, they hear that, they automatically turn off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll just argue that there are ways and there are social structures that work to the disadvantage people of color, and they're not, it does not, mean, it does not require a person to be individually racist. There's just some certain ways that social structures work against people of color. Uh, I would go, I would expand on the, the that I think that this happens because of historical effects. Hmm. That you set a society that benefits whites, and even though you start passing laws to go away from that, you still have vestiges of that there. 
you would also, I would also argue the historical effects in that things that happened in the past impact us today. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why I'm the first person in my family to get a college degree is that because I'm the smartest. Uh, so that impacts a lot of chances today. And I do think that there's still some subtle forms of prejudice out there that people hide, but comes out in, in awkward moments. Well, you were even mentioning about how certain people you can see on resumes by their name. If you put, mm-hmm. you know, certain names that are much more, uh, I don't know, cu- culturally European, um, yeah. and they're more likely to, than someone who's got more of a, a name uh, that comes more that Jamal. perceptively, yeah, yeah, or Jamal, or, or I mean, you know, Latanya or something along that yeah. line, whatever those names would be. The hard part I've been trying to figure out, because we've tried to not have the colorblind approach, but yeah. to say, even in our leadership at our church, we wanted our leadership to be representative of the community rather than like mm-hmm. something like affirmative action. We were saying, yeah. is, is our church representative of the community, number one, in its makeup? Mm-hmm. And number two, is our leadership representative of that as well? Rather than say, we're just going to look for someone like that. It's more like we want to find the qualified person, the qualified person, no matter who they are, but we are going to make sure that we, we do our due diligence to investigate all of those who make yeah. that up in our, but a lot of people have a harder time with that, especially I think with the institutional part. The institutional part is something that I think a lot of people don't know. And I've had people tell me this, they said, legally, there is no such issue. Legally, mm. fine. Matter of fact, it's gone the other way. And, and that's where I stop and I go, maybe not legally, not on paper, but emotionally, there's mm. a weight and there's experience and there's development yeah. with, with that. And it's not the same opportunities. How do you then, I mean, is this book help designed, you think, I mean, in, in what you hope would be as a, a conversation started to generate those conversations so that those things can be recognized and as much as they can be of eternity fixed? Yeah. Uh, you know, you're touching on some of the themes that I dealt with when I was writing about multiracial churches. Okay. Uh, as far as leadership. I do think that churches have to be deliberate in their leadership structure. Uh, I don't want to say that it has to have a quota, but I think if you, and I think you're, you hit on the head, if you want to represent a multiracial community, you have to have multiracial leaders. I agree. You don't want to see someone up there that reminds them of them. Yes. So I, you know, when I was talking more about interracial churches, multiracial churches, I would talk to the churches about how are you selecting your leaders and what can we do? How? Doesn't work to give people of color. Make sure you're not selecting your leaders by your friend of a friend because your if your network is white and their network is white, you're going to select another white leader. Right. So there are ways in which uh, people can look at that uh, that whole question. And that's not uh, obviously these aren't all these solutions aren't going to be done in this podcast. That's for sure. Um, but I I think your book is a a a big contribution going forward. I think it is a necessary thing and I, I'm excited about that, but I want to change gears here for a moment. Mm-hmm. Moving, not that we're moving beyond racial division. We're yeah. playing with the title there and not that we're moving beyond it, but I want to talk about one faith no longer, if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah. So I really, so the title is one faith, no longer the transformation of Christianity in red and blue America. And you wrote this with Ashley. How do you say your last name? Is it Cusick? Quisick. Quisick. Quisic. Okay, I want to make sure that I get that correct. I, I'm not as familiar with anybody that has a Q for the, in their first yeah. part of their last name. And I never know what's silent and what is not. But I, your book struck me when I saw this come out, uh, and it's by NYU Press. I, 
I thought, oh, someone has finally written about it because I hear I'm hearing more and more about progressive Christianity. And you guys wrote a book really about conservative and progressive Christianity, looking at mm. the statistics. Now, that's a part out of the book that I just didn't like because I'm not a statistician. So I'm like, skip. I don't even yeah. know how to read this. But give me the impetus behind this book. Why did you guys write this book? Well, I can only speak for myself. You know, you can have Ashley, she can speak about why she wanted to write. Right. I actually was on another paper. Uh, I did another paper that I got published that, uh, and I was using this measure called thermometer scale. So you know, 100, how much you like a person. And what I found out was, and, and this I wasn't looking for this, that uh, mainline Protestants like atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, whatever, more than they like conservative Protestants. And I was thinking, huh, is that true? And so I looked some data and sure enough it was. And so I wanted to understand this division, this conflict uh, that's there. Because up to that point, I was like a lot of conservative Christians. I thought, well, Christians are Christian. We're all one part of having family. We just have a slightly different beliefs. It's much more fundamental than that. And you mentioned that it was so fundamental that you look likened it to Hinduism and Buddhism, that they're actually two yeah. separate faiths. Right, yeah. And what are yeah, I'm not sure that they're that far yet, but I'm just saying here's an example of how it could how it could develop. And but it's it's moving along those type mm -hmm. of lines. I under, I understand you don't want to go too far into that because that any illustration breaks down and it's not always a one-to-one -one yeah. comparison. But Looking at that then, I mean, what, what led you to that belief? Because it seemed in the book, you say that there are such fundamental differences at the very foundation of their belief systems that they're irreconcilable. Yeah. What, what are those, where, what's the starting point? Because you have, you even have different starting points. Conservatives start in one place and progressives start in another place. So here's the most fundamental starting point. What is ultimate value to your group? Mm -hmm. Well, certain Christians, where you get ultimate value, what you what what you value more than anything else is, yeah, your relationship with God, but uh, your relationship with the Bible as well. That uh, that you take the Bible seriously and you try to do everything in it and you use it to proof text your life. You know, it's perfect, but that's what you do. That's not the starting point for progressive Christians. For me, the humanistic ethic of social justice is their starting point. That's what you use to orient your life by, mm -hmm. and so. That I think is the most fundamentalist difference between two groups. Mm. And conservatives start with they start with their interpretation of the Bible. So the Bible's at the foundation of it. That's why that's one yes. of the things that surprised me is in your research because I, I I always thought being coming from more of a conservative Christian background, um, I would think and I get frustrated with how politically outspoken many of my brothers and sisters are but yet they yeah. don't seem to be biblically informed yeah. or biblically based it seemed like their conservatism even though they say it was rooted in faith is actually much more of a conservatism politically and looking for political power yeah so yeah, I and honestly i went in the book thinking somewhat similar thoughts and the data showed me otherwise that yeah. progressive christians are more likely to engage in politics than certain christians is that because of the root foundation of what their their system is it could be. It could be. Yeah. What was the impetus then that really showed the difference between the two? I mean, when you say the research shows, because yeah. like you said, you had a similar starting point. When was the tipping point the other way? It's really just running the, the data uh, as I read the data. And I saw that progressive Christians do, do, do uh, 
prioritize non-Christian but politically progressive groups over Christian groups. And then as Ashley really helped out with the uh, quality of the interviews, that it comes out, comes out some more. I also joined a couple of listservs, uh, still called listservs, discussion groups on Facebook. And I, I joined a couple of ones that are progressive Christians. And that really was an eye-opener. I didn't use any of that in the book or, you know, just because it would have been inappropriate. But that was an eye-opener, how progressive Christians think about things. And they, they, they do see conservative Christians as not being part of their group, not being part of their faith. Not just, not just being a progressive Christian, but not being part of the Christian faith. If you believe that, then over time, uh, unless... Unless there's a military intervention, you're going to develop a different religious set of beliefs. So, progressive Christians then would are they predominantly white college educated people? Yeah, they're overrepresented among uh, as race, whites, and education. Yes. And what are the hallmarks then of progressive Christianity? Uh, well, we try to go into this open minded, uh, and we argue that the hallmarks is what we call a human humanistic ethic of social justice, that orients them, how, what, they, what they value, what they see as good and evil, their purpose in life, that, uh, that, that this sort of issues of social justice uh, is, is a key element. So social justice then is the, the kind of the axis on which it turns? I would argue so, yes. I'll give you uh, a great example is homosexuality, right? <laughs> so the conservative Christian looks at that and says, okay, what does the Bible say? Uh, the Bible says it's okay, fine. If not, then not, not so fine. Uh, progressive Christian looked at that and says, well, it's not important what the Bible says. It's how it fits into our, our interpretation of social justice. If our interpretation says this is okay, then it's okay. But it doesn't, then it doesn't. So the social justice, though, seems to be formulated uh, perhaps by what Carl Truman talks about as the expressive individualist. I'm seeing more and more about the expressive individualist and finding meaning within oneself and the well especially with the sexual ethic that has mm. been that united in that way so i mean i know we're talking about some kind of high christian high, some high theory yeah. here <laughs> this is stuff that i love by the way <laughs> this yeah. is this is part of the show because i do think that that people are searching for greater answers than what they've received in the past mm. and they want to yeah. go deeper and this is why i think your research is so important i want to thank you for coming on the show thank you thank you for having me I want to recommend people to get the book. And how can people follow and learn more about what you're doing? Um, my website is georgeyancy.com. Yancy with an E, so it's C-E-Y, not C-Y. It's a different person. Uh, and I'm, <laughs> I am on Facebook, George Yancy. I am on Twitter. Thank you, George, for coming on the show. Thank you. God bless. We want to help you water your world. And if your world considers Christians followers of Jesus to be foolish, racist, bigoted, or backward, then you need to know how to answer the challenges going forward by showing them who Jesus is. And, and that means by showing them who you are, because we are like him. We are to be people of truth, of courage, who seek peace. And at Apollos Watered, we want to help with that. George Yancey gives us a way forward so that we don't make the mistakes of colorblindness or anti-racism, but seek a better way, the way of mutual accountability. But it's going to be a fight, and we'll be here to help encourage and equip you 
along the way. I know that the idea of engaging in a conversation about race with someone from a different race can be scary, no matter how that goes. No matter if you're African-American and you have a hard time talking with white people about it, or if you are white and you have a hard time talking to someone who is African-American or Indian, or no matter what ethnicity that you're speaking to, you could be Chinese talking to someone who is Indian. But it's scary. It's scary because it carries within it the possibility of pain. I know that there are some out there who have been hurt before because you've tried to have a conversation. And that person sitting across from you said something hurtful or foolish. I know that others want to talk about issues of race because they see what's going on, but they feel woefully unqualified. And still others, you've been doing it so long that you, you want to pass because you've, you're simply tired of talking about it. And still others don't know where to begin or are afraid of saying something stupid. And you might. I know I have. I've made more mistakes than I have successes. But I kept going because I wanted to understand. And I always wanted to make sure that I was not only allowing the question that I'm asking someone to, to, to learn about them, but to take that same question and turn it back on myself and try to share something about me at the same time so that we could understand one another. No matter where you are in your conversation about race, make sure you are respectful and not defensive as best as you can be, and really try to practice active listening as George spoke about. I do think that this is an important conversation because of John 17. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prayed that all the followers of him would be one, would be unified as he was one with the Father, so that the world would know that he is from God. The unity that he desires we have is to transcend all of the previous categories of demarcation, race, nationality, class, status, education, etc., and we're going to need God to help us in this so that we might do so in love. So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to pray for you, that God might help you to be courageous. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for who you are and how you have given your Son to provide redemption to us to remove that dividing wall of hostility that kept us from you. And Lord, that dividing wall in, in so many ways keeps us from really knowing and being known by people of different ethnic backgrounds. I pray that you give us a heart to understand and ears to listen and the courage to have a conversation so that we might be able to take steps toward mutual accountability, helping one another in our walks with Jesus, that we might become more like you. And Lord, we know that we're going to make mistakes, and we pray that you help us along the way. Help us to repent of foolishness or sin. Help us to acknowledge pain, but also help us to 
Seek truth, unity, and peace, so that your name might receive glory, and that we might increase in joy. And Lord, when we encounter people who disagree with us, who disagree with our approach, and who might advocate an entirely different one, help us to be patient, help us to be loving, and help us to continue to listen, even when we disagree. So Lord, be with us and use us so that your name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. In Jesus' name. I want to thank you for spending time with us today. And if this episode has helped you, would you consider partnering with us? We could not do this without you. We're looking for watering partners to help our ministry grow. And we're delighted and thankful to all of those who have partnered with us in such a short period of time. If God has used this episode to grow your faith, then please partner with us. Go online to apolloswatered.org, and there's a Support Us button in the upper right-hand corner. Click that, and you will find many suggested amounts. Pick the one that is right for you, or simply write in the amount and surprise us. We'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered, If you've been impacted while listening to one of our episodes, do us a favor. Screenshot that episode, text it to a friend, share it online, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform. Subscribing and leaving a review also puts it out there to more people. The more you rate, the more difference it makes. And I wrote a review for something a few weeks back and got an email from Google that said my rating was actually making a difference as people were reading it to determine whether they were going to purchase the product I reviewed. And don't forget, we have content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that's shareable. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. I want to thank the Apollos Watered team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.